right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Cosmic Matrix podcast with your hosts, Bernard Günther and uh, my wife, Laura Matsu. Today, our very special guest is James Bartley. And viewers or readers of my work or followers of uh, Piercing the Veil of Reality know that I have been on James's podcast a couple of times. These were great interviews, and Laura has been on there recently as well. So we are more than delighted to have James on here. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you, Bernard and Laura. I'm really pleased to be here. Absolutely. Now, just want to read a little bit from your bio for people who are not aware of your background or where you're coming from. James Bartley has been researching alien abductions and the military aerospace connection to UFOs and alien life forms for 25 years. He is a protege of legendary alien abduction researcher Barbara Batholik of Tulsa, Oklahoma. James has spent a lot of time conducting field investigations in the high desert of Southern California, Arizona, and Nevada. He specializes in research and investigations into reptilian aliens and military abductions. James is an independent historian with an emphasis on military history, intelligence, counterintelligence, and special operations. James has lectured all over in the U.S., Australia, and numerous other places at various conferences over the past two decades. He was formerly mem a member of the Night Search Paranormal Network, NSPN, and hosted his own show called the Bureau of Alien-Human Affairs, Directorate 5, Reptilian Section. James also co-facilitated uh, support groups for alien abductees and military abductees, MyLabs. And his website and podcast is the Cosmic Switchboard. Dot com. Now, before we get into dive into these topics and also share, we want to Laura and I share our personal experiences and get your reflections, James. I just want to uh, point out that I first came across your work, and I mentioned this to you before in the, in the mid mid nineties, around the time I started researching UFOs and also came across the res um, research of uh, Dr. Carla Turner and alien abductions and i remember watching lectures of you uh, back then on google google video you know <laughs> where you were speaking at conferences and you definitely helped me to i learned a lot uh, from your research and your experiences and i also included some of your research in this in the ufo documentary i made in 2011 ufos aliens and the question of contact and since then we have connected we had a couple great um panel discussions, you know, on the alien love by topic, also with Eve Lorgan, Tom Montag, and on another panel discussion with the same participants on hyperdimensional interferences. So now let's uh, dive a bit deeper into it. Yeah, so I'm just going to be asking you questions because I'm less familiar with your work. For, so so few people can really understand what you're all about, because I know a lot of the topics that you get into are like, so misunderstood and there's so much disinfo out there. So my first question is more personal. Like how did you get introduced to this work? And then what was your life like before that? If you even had a life before that? <laughs> That's a good question, Laura. Like a lot of people, I didn't come to a realization of having these experiences until much later in life. I just went through my childhood, uh, my adolescent years, my teenage years, thinking it was kind of normal, although I, I always had an interest in the so-called paranormal, uh, UFOs, the Bermuda Triangle, Sasquatch. I used to watch shows like In Search Of, if you remember that show with Leonard Nimoy and uh, Unsolved Mysteries, I watched those all the time. Oh, yeah, I, just had a deep, I just had a deep interest in those subjects. Never dreamed that 
I was deeply immersed in it as I was, although I had a lot of experiences. I think it's a process of, of compartmentalization in a way. Uh, Laura and Bernard, almost a form of, of dissociation when you think about it, where we can have a bunch of these experiences beginning at early childhood, but we have a way of putting these things in the back burner so we don't dwell on them too much. The subject matter and the, the themes and the emotions tied in with it are there. They're ever present. And this manifested in ways like sleeping with the lights on, uh, being a bit skittish and uh, fearful of the dark and being an alien abductee. It must be understood uh, by everyone that it's not just the physical examinations being taken on board, being laid on tables and medically uh, poked and prodded. The aliens, they influence us and manipulate us through the the totality of our being, uh, through our dream state, through our psychic, uh, our innate latent psychic abilities. They tap into us that way uh, in our astral dreamscape. So all those things happened to me as a child uh, besides the, the UFO sightings, the UFO dreams, the missing time. I would wake up with nosebleeds. I would wake up with my nightclothes inside out and backwards sometimes, like my underwear would be on backwards and inside out. Uh, I used to wear those one-piece pajamas mine mine were gray so i always likened myself to looking like bugs bunny without the ears and you know you have the little attached booties at the bottom the the uh, socks i would wake up in the morning and find stickers and dirt clods underneath uh, the socks of my my pajamas as if i'd been outdoors at night and my family would tell me uh, this is when i was living in daly city my dad at the time was in the navy at assigned to Naval Air Station Alameda, which has long since been um, disused. But in the old days, they used to park a a lot of the aircraft carriers there uh, near San Francisco Bay. And we lived in Daly City, which is right next to San Francisco. And I had a lot of experiences when I was there. In hindsight, I can look back now, and I had a lot of things going on. I slept on an upper bunk bed. My older brother slept below. And I would have to climb up onto a desk to get to the upper bunk to go to sleep. And my family would find me at times everywhere, but in my upper bunk, they would find me lying on the desk. They would find me lying under the desk. They would find me in another part of the house, sound asleep. And I would have no recollection of any of this. They would just tell me, Oh, James was sleepwalking again. So somehow or other, I climbed down in the middle of the night, sound asleep, and would park myself underneath the desk or underneath the coffee table in the living room or the sofa or some other place. And again, throughout this process, I was having UFO dreams. And then 74, 73 rolled around, 73, 74, 75. And for one who studies UFO history, those were big years UFO-wise and alien abduction-wise. 73, you had the Charles Hickson, Calvin Parker abduction in Pasigula, Mississippi. Uh, around 75 time frame, you had the Travis Walton uh, abduction mm-hmm. in, in Arizona. And when national news broke out about these stories, I was just hit with a deep, deep, nameless fear. I didn't know where it came from. I just knew that at some level, 
it was just the thought of people being abducted by aliens was too terrible to contemplate. So that just tied in with all the nameless fear and all the trepidation I had. I used to actually set booby traps in my bedroom when I was a boy. I would have uh, like all this yarn and string laid out on the floor. I would set booby traps. So if someone tripped like a, a, a string, like a toy would come swinging down and hit somebody at head level. Right. So mm-hmm. I, and I used to sleep beneath mounds of bedding, uh, mounds of pillows. I used to leave a little kind of crack in the corner where when my air would start to get stale in my little air pocket beneath, I would like lift up, you know, my blanket and <laughs> suck in air from the outside, you know, and, and I would do this with the lights on. I wasn't even in the dark. Right. And then come my adolescent years, the, the UFO dreams intensified and what the ETs are doing then again, it's with the benefit of hindsight. They started showing me in a very real way that we are more than just physical flesh and blood beings. They began taking me astrally and inducing astral experiences in me where I would more sense than feel or hear a high pitched tone and associated heat with it. But it wasn't really heat. It was an energy field of some sort. And I would feel this at night. And it would at times blatantly induce an out-of-body experience where I would just be shunted right out of my body. And I would look down and I would see myself laying there. And other times it was more subtle. I'd be laying in bed, restless, unable to sleep, rolling this way, rolling over on my tummy, never realizing all the time I was already out of my body. And then on one occasion when I was like that at night with that high-pitched tone and that sensation of heat, but it really wasn't heat. It was an energy field. I just suddenly decided to get up out of bed because I, I wasn't able to get to sleep. I just thought it was insomnia. And I just thought projected myself getting up out of bed. Next thing you know, whoosh, I'm standing outside of myself looking at my body laying in bed. And then I'd already had some out-of-body experiences by that point. I go, oh, I'm out of my body again. And around this time, I began reading Robert Monroe's books. Mm. Now, one of the things about me is whenever I'm confronted with the unknown or things that I really want to get a better understanding Mm of, I always read, 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 read. This is long before the internet days. So in order to understand the out-of-body experience better, I just went out and I found Robert Monroe's books, which are an absolute classic if you read them all in sequence. And what happened on this particular occasion was I jumped out of my body thinking I was getting out of bed. I look at myself laying there, and then all of a sudden, and I may be getting these out-of-body experiences mixed up because I had so many of them back then, but next thing you know, I saw a very large bluish-white circle uh, kind of cast onto the wall. And then this changed into a very big triangle, a, a lighted triangle on my wall. And of course, you know, the head scratching begins. What is this? What am I being presented with? What's going on here, right? And of course, because by then, I'm in my teenage years by now, I was already familiar with Travis Walton and some of the other abduction accounts. Antonio Villas Boas in um, Latin America, where he was taken on board egg-shaped craft and made to have sex with an alien woman. 
Can I just ask you a quick question about the high yeah, pitched tone? Does it sound yeah. like it's from very far away and then it like it's like all around you? So at first you yes. hear at a distance. Oh, okay. I know. And it's like all encompassing, like Yeah. Bad yeah. imitation, but kind of like ee. And yeah, it yeah, just yeah. seems and it just seems to just at least for me at the time, yeah, made me jump out of my body. So to, just to round out that story, uh, I would look over and now instead of a big lighted circle, I'm seeing a triangle uh, in, in front of me. Right. And I'm in an out of body state. So again, this is stuff that you just kind of put in the back burner. Okay. I'm having an out of body experience. Don't know what this stuff is. I'll figure it out later. Right. And you know, I'm going through my teenage years and all the teenage angst and confusion and anxiety that goes with it. So this was just another layer uh, on top of that. And I was having all these inner, what I now know to be interdimensional dreams because in my writing that's going to be coming up before too long, I'm going to be talking about alternate realities, timelines, and, and, and dimension hopping in our dreams. And I've had a number of dreams where I was just suddenly in some other place, and I knew it wasn't a dream. It was too linear. I was there, a sense of immediacy. And there was all this stuff going on, and I just found myself stuck in these weird places and had difficulty getting back sometimes. So when I talk about the alien abduction experience, it's multifaceted rather than just the standard medical procedures and what have you. And that's what I had to come to grips with. Mm. Yeah. Actually, when you're, when you're saying those things that happened in your childhood, it reminds me of a lot of the stuff I experienced, like the clothes on backwards and then being up sleeping in weird places. And then also the paranormal, it's almost like subconsciously you had that interest in unsolved mysteries and those kinds of TV shows because a part of you knew that's what was going on or about to happen and then it kind of it's similar to how trauma like when we experience traumas we compartmentalize them until we're ready to like face it directly it seems like i mean all of these experiences are going to be some level of trauma because they're outside of the realm of what we've been like taught is ordinary so we just kind of put it aside until we're ready to face it basically yeah so so that's interesting because you know, when you look into alien abduction research around the time you would experience it, there was, like you mentioned, a lot of emphasis on just, oh, these aliens are just here to, they're just curious, they're medically examining us, right? Examining us. But you said there's, based on your own experience, there's more to the whole picture. And then how, when did you get into, when, uh, because you, you know, got deeply involved also with uh, Barbara Bartholik and then also, you know, was also working together with Dr. Carla Turner and those uh, both researchers have done tremendous work in the alien abduction field and uncovering a way more quote unquote disturbing picture almost. Is that correct? Absolutely. For me, you know, I, I'm one of those people that my experiences come psychically. I'm sure that in the mix between these big, heavy experience cycles, if you will, I've had some experiences here and there, some of which I can't remember. But for me, for the most part, it usually ran in cycles, uh, 70, 72, 73, 75, early 80s. And then it jumped to 88, where I had a lot of experiences. And again, I, I did not have the conceptual framework. I've had a number of UFO sightings by then, some of them quite close. I had a number of UFO dreams some of which I think are more than just dreams in hindsight. And then 88 rolls around. And I, I found out later with my research with Barbara Bartholik that 
she called 1988 the, the UFO invasion year because mm. in the area that she worked, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, uh, that area, there were mass abductions, not just whole families being taken. And I've heard this from other researchers too, but in some cases, multiple people in a single neighborhood being taken in mass abductions. And many of us that have had the abduction experience recall seeing at times on board ships in what seems to be in an underground facility or some other place, at times the place is just teeming with people. There's lots of other people. And 1988 was one of those years. And I had a number of experiences, two in particular, where I recalled waking up and being taken through my ceiling and a number of other experiences. And finally, it culminated in 1990 when I'd gone to Germany on a language study program only for three months. I was there for the summer, 1990, in Laufenburg, which is on the German side of the, the Rhine River, just across the river is uh, Laufenburg, Switzerland, right? And the last couple of weeks there, that childhood anxiety, that fear, that nameless fear, it started coming back, uh, Bernard and Laura. And I began sleeping with my lights on again. I slept in, in, in a guest house in, in the topmost room that overlooks the Rhine River. And people have told me from across the river in Switzerland, they always knew when I was awake or when I was home at any rate, because the, the light in my room was like a lighthouse. It was like a beacon. They could see it for miles. And they would tell me, yeah, you were up late last night, weren't you? Uh, I was just laying in bed, usually scared. So for the last couple of weeks, this fear started coming back. And along the Rhine there, it's the southern edge of the Black Forest. And we know about all the lore, the, the stories about the Black Forest, the Grimm's tales and what have you. There was one stretch along the Rhine there where the vegetation and trees were arranged in such a way. And it was probably, a lot of it was natural to begin with, but they kind of shaped it. So you'd be walking what seemed to be a tunnel, but it was really the trees and the vegetation. And it was a stretch of about oh, 90, 100 feet. And it got to the point those last two weeks uh, I was in Germany where if I was walking and it was nighttime and I had to go through that tunnel of trees and, and brush, I would sprint through it. I would run as fast as I could to get to the other side. So th that's the kind of fear I'm talking about that was mm -hmm. coming back. And so fast forward to when I came back home uh, to San Jose, California, September 1990. I came back about a week or two before uh, the school term started. I was going to uh, college. And in the weeks coming back from Germany, I had a series of ET experiences. Boom, boom, boom. Something was happening every week, it seemed, culminating in a night when I woke up and I found three what I now know to be reptilian greys. Uh, Carla Turner talked about the chicken claws. These weren't fingers with long nails. These were just claws, hence the term chicken claws that Candy Turner came up with. And I woke up in my bed and there was three of these beings around me, one at the foot of the bed and then one by the door and then one r right on the side of the bed. And, you know, I, I was, of course, terrified and I was immobilized. The one closest to me on the side of the bed said to me in clear telepathic communication, 
no accent, no dialect, nothing. It, it said to me, you're just having a nightmare. Go back to sleep. Easier said than done. I just pinched my eyes shut. I, I turned my head over to the left towards the wall because I couldn't move my body. Paralysis had already set in. Then after, you know, I don't know how long, I opened my eyes, looked over. The entities were still there. So this was not a dream, right? And then the situation degenerated from there, uh, Laura and Bernard, because they brought in some hideous-looking female with long black hair, some kind of hybrid uh, grayish cross between them and us. It had memories. I remember that clearly. And this being, this female being mounted me and began simulating intercourse. Now, what was interesting was I'm pretty sure that I had the bed covers like just below my neck. And again, total paralysis said, and I could not move as try as I might to get this thing off me. I couldn't do it. So I just pinched my eyes shut during the whole time. I feel, and maybe I'm just saying this to make myself feel better. I don't know, but I feel that it, it was merely simulating intercourse with me when it, when it got on top of me, because I don't, because again, I had no sensation below the neck. I couldn't move the rest of my body. I had my, bedding covering me right but regardless the experience was traumatizing and very frightening and it seemed to last for a long time i just pitched my eyes shut and and eventually that segment ended and then i came to consciousness on board the what i assumed to be the craft and i was in a long winding corridor there was a reptilian gray to my right one to my left one a few feet in front of me and I was being led along, whether I was being levitated or I was kind of sleepwalking state, walking along. And my head was tilted downwards and something, and I've, this happened to me before in other abduction experiences. I've heard it from others. Sometimes it seems our vision is, is manipulated. So our, our radius of vision, our peripheral vision is, is kind of like drastically shortened, if you will. So my head is tilted downwards. I can only see a short distance around me enough to see that there was a entity in front and two on the side. And they led me down this long curving corridor. Eventually it opened up into a very large room and I was being, and I remember all this without hypnosis. I woke up the next morning, a basket case, as you can imagine. So I was being led down this corridor, not a corridor, but like kind of like an aisle to use our human terms. And on either side of me, in the periphery of my vision, again, because my head is like pointing down, I see what appear to be other tables with people on them, beings, humans, mostly humans, I, I would imagine. And they're just all laying there in various state, stages or states of undress. And I'm led to a, what seems to be the far end of the room, laid on a table. And then there seemed to be like a, what many call like the doctor or the head doctor, E.T., kind of a tall bluish kind of looking guy and there was these smaller tannish looking brownish beings that were scurrying around very fast and when you look at this table it just looks like a plain table not like a human table but there seemed to be some depth to it but I was placed on it and purely involuntary without any effort on my part I was made to do all these sit-ups and stomach crunchers and to the point where I was laying on my stomach and my uh, legs were bent all the way back to the point where my heels were almost touching 
the back of my head, if you can imagine that, where, you know, I'm kind of like in a, you know, in a U shape. And in between grunts, I asked this entity next to me, clear as day, I remember this, what are you doing, right? And it said, we're taking your energy, which mm-hmm. didn't make sense to me. I just thought it was throwing me a bone mm-hmm. until much later, you know, by then I'd moved to San Diego and, and I'd gotten become part of the San Diego UFO Society. And I asked the director, Sean Atlanty, I go, well, what, what do you think he was trying to tell me? Oh, it sounds to me like they were activating all these chakra points and they were <laughs> siphoning your energy. Oh, well, that makes sense. Because by then I'd understood what, had an idea of what chakras are all about. But getting back to your point about how I got into it and how I got involved with Barbara Brothick and Carla Turner, I then moved to San Diego, which was the best thing that could have happened because it was there that I got to befriend Eve Lorgan and I became heavily involved in the UFO community. And, you know, we, the internet was just starting to come into being. We really just did a lot of phone calling in those days and, and letter writing. But it was during that process, uh, I met Carla Turner at the International UFO Congress in, what was it, 92, 91, November? I can't remember the exact year. It was at the showboat. So they've since tore this down in Vegas. But it was at the showboat. And I attended that conference for the whole week. Carla Turner was there. She was the main reason I attended. And I made it a point to get around her constantly. You know, I, I, I helped her. I was part of the van shuttle crew to, you know, drive her back to the airport. And, you know, I was kind of, I tried to be her gopher in so many ways because I wanted to get to know her. Uh, because when she gave her lecture, it really hit home for me. Because it, it must be understood that when I went from San Jose, which was a backwater in UFO alien abduction research, I didn't know anyone there, and then moved to San Diego, suddenly I was immersed in the UFO scene. However, there was a very strong new age element there, and, and I got kind of caught up with them, right? Mm. To the point where I was almost using their diction and using their jargon and stuff for a while. But I still had that nameless fear because I was still having abductions every now and then. But I was starting to see things, oh, maybe it's for my spiritual evolution. I'm sure they have a good reason for doing these things. All these justifications were creeping in. And then I go to the International UFO Congress, and Candy Turner literally kicks me in the ass just by her lecture, right? To the point where I had to get up during the lecture when Carla was up there and walk to the other side of the room, sit next to Sean Atlanty, the director of the San Diego UFO Society, just to have that moral support, just to be next to a friend. Because the stuff that she was saying was hardcore and it was hitting home. And the moral that I came out of that with Bernard and Laura was Candy gave me permission to feel okay that these experiences, at least some of them, were not were not proper and were not correct and were unethical. Mm-hmm. She gave me permission to question the nature of them, that it's all not love and light, that it's not all for our spiritual involvement, mm-hmm. that that's just pablum that was thrown to us. And when Carla was up there and she kept edifying and referencing Barbara Bartholick, right, mm-hmm. to the point where Barbara was like this mythological figure to me. And long story short, I, I became friends with Barbara, uh, with Candy, began writing letters to her because I wasn't on the internet yet. And uh, it was out of that connection and through a guy named Bob Urie of Philadelphia who had me speak at one of his conferences in Philadelphia. It was Bob actually who gave me the, the um, 
contact information for Barbara Barthold because Candy was such a titanic figure, it must be understood, all four feet, four or whatever inches of her. She was so strong and so powerful. I was literally too intimidated to ask her for Barbara Barthold's contact information. So it had to be my other friend, Bob Urey, who'd had Barbara and Candy speak for him at a previous conference that gave me Barbara's phone number. I called up and then the rest is history. Yeah. Once again, what you said also reminds me so much of how just people protect any experience of abuse and they normalize it and then they compartmentalize it. And then when, you know, someone speaks out and says what happened wasn't okay, then they can bring forth all the memories. But what we normalize is usually what we also compartmentalize. And so that's kind of sounds similar. And and I'm curious too. So you want to say something too? No, no, go ahead. Uh, uh, like okay so this what is this link between the gray aliens and reptilians can you just uh speak to that because i know for some people they have some beliefs about reptilians and then there's david ike's whole (laughs) conversation about them so what have you found in your own research like what are they the same are they are they connected what's the link I believe that some of the so-called greys, and greys itself is kind of a nebulous umbrella term to describe a certain type of creature that happens to be grey in appearance. I think some of the grey factions are distinct, unique civilizations and cultures unto themselves. I also believe that some of those grey factions have been suborned or otherwise come under the control of reptilians, mantis beings, and other stronger beings, if you will. And I believe that many of the gray factions, they, they can't reproduce the way that we can. They've kind of reached the end of their biological evolutionary tether as far as reproduction is concerned, physical reproduction. So they have to resort to advanced genetics, for lack of a better term, cloning and, and what have you. So I believe that a number of these more superior, more dominant races, i.e. the reptilians, the mantis beings, they've taken to mass producing, for lack of a better term, some greys to do their bidding for them. Because it seems that in certain contexts, the greys are subservient to some of these other races like the reptilians and and, and the mantis beings. Uh, I have spoken to many people. I've seen it myself. There's this school of thought that will hold that, oh, there's no reptilians, there's only greys and hybrids of greys. That's nonsense. That's put out by people like, like David Jacobs and before him, with all due respect, people like Bud Hopkins, right? He's done a lot for the field, but you know they had their limitations as far as certain aspects of this is concerned. So in a nutshell, it's a mixed bag. Some are their own distinct culture. Mm. Like in, in Betty Andreessen's books, the um, – uh, the Andreas and Affair 1 and 2, The Watchers 1, 2, and 3. I think she had three volumes of The Watchers. She goes into detail because she had a photographic memory. And she was also an artist, so she can draw what's come up in her memory. And also she had photographic recall in her hypnosis regressions. So she can draw and explain a narrative of what she'd experienced. Mm-hmm. And so much of what she and others like us have experienced, there's no context in a normal everyday sense. So it, we sometimes find difficult to even explain what happened to us because you know the limitations of language but in a nutshell yes these grays some of them are their own but some of them 
definitely work for other species. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that confirms. I think I mentioned that in my Yovo documentary based on my own research. And I don't have these experiences as you have. You know, mine is more based on research and some, you know, experience on Yovo sightings, but no, these none of these abduction experiences or classical abduction experiences you mentioned. But it seems like that the greys are more like almost like a biogenetic robot and not a race in themselves engineered by the reptilians. Because I've heard from some abduction accounts then, you know, that... Um, I think um, Dr. Carla Turner, or even uh, Dr. Jacobs, I may reference his work as well. He has, you know, both Jacobs and Hopkins have done, as you said, good work in the field, but got limited just in this examination until Carla Turner and Barbara Bafflick blew it all open, you know, that we are being farmed for energy and, and, you know, as a food source. Uh, but he also mentioned like this, this staring of these reptilians over the, you know, when the typical staring, the eye gazing, um, is, is, is that they're being used as an interface for the reptilians, so to speak, right? And then the reptilians working through the greys and that the greys are not a race on their own, which is interesting because, you know, we all know that the grey alien picture image is the culture icon, right? You see yeah. it everywhere on Area 51. That's the only, the alien, you know, em- emoticon, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and everybody. And, and nowadays it's, it's blown off proportion because the new age, all things, these are the good guys, right? That's, that's a whole... I want to get to that as as well, but I want to also go back to what you shared before you that moment at the conference when you met Carla Turner and they got introduced to Barbara's work, and you know what what Laura talked about as well that you got it's almost like all these abduction experiences when you can even see it from a, a psychological perspective you know they initiate a trauma response you know when you have these experiences you are asleep you are frozen. And it seems that's what they want you to do to get stuck in trauma, that lower frequency, and then confuse you even more with whatever you're being done to you, virtual realities and all of that, to the point that you literally even the new age Stockholm syndrome mm-hmm. developed. Oh, this is done for my better good. It's good. I'm chose, I chose this. This is for, and that what a lot of channelers, gray aliens talk about that they do upgrade our DNA, you know, until you came, saw the truth at the conference. And, and I, I, you know, I saw a few lectures of Carla Turner. She's a true warrior, like pointing it out as it is. And she literally basically paid uh, with a, paid the price with her life for bringing uh, out the truth. Right. So with all that being said, like you said, you know, what do you, um, based on, you know, your history and your research and then, you know, bringing this information forward, you know, it's also something to be said. There's so many people out there that experience that, you know, and living with this weight of just being called crazy or sane or not knowing what to do anymore. You know, like it's, it's such, this topic is such a, is such a, how can I say swamp? Because as you mentioned, there's also so much disinformation, right? Mm-hmm. So what can you maybe um, advise for people who are dealing with, with these kind of experiences uh, what is the first step to do probably first gaining knowledge or what do you have, you know, as a, as a, as a veteran abductee, so to speak, who has healed himself on many levels, how, how to approach these experiences. First, I would say to, to own your, your feelings about it. If your intuition and your inner core being is screaming metaphorically that there's something not right, that you have this, fear of the subject of UFOs and aliens as out of all proportion to what you can consciously recollect as as Carlo Turner pointed out virtually everything that we experience within an alien context is controlled information even to the point of 
them manipulating how we feel about a given experience or how, what we remember of a given experience. So we're often left with kind of this pablum platitude kind of memory when actually the experiences were something quite different. So I would say that no, no matter what one's memories are of the experience, and again, oftentimes your screen memories, go with the feeling, go with internally what your gut instinct is telling you and go with that. And also part of the control system is, you know, is the, the new age manipulation and the new agers, as far as the ET subject concerned, they're very into shaming, which is very hypocritical considering they're always talking about love and light and, and all this other stuff. When someone in mixed, i.e., New Age Company mentions, yeah, I had a negative experience with reptilians and manis beings. And then the shaming comes in from every direction. All the justifications are just spiritually unevolved. You don't understand the good they're doing to you. Mm. One has to recognize that that in itself is part of the control system. Why do they have such a knee-jerk reaction? Why are they not open-minded enough Mm. to allow someone else to have their own perception and feelings about any subject? If I go to see a movie, if I go to see a baseball game, I'm allowed to have my own feelings about those experiences because they're personal and eternal to me. So why this strong reaction in new age circles to anything of a negative nature? That's a red flag uh, because you're more likely to find people. And, and likewise, on the Internet and on YouTube, you're more likely to find the feel good new age, warm and fuzzy ET version of what's going on than the kind of issues that we're bringing up. So on the one hand, we have to own our feelings and trust our inner uh, navigation intuition. On on the other hand, not be allowed ourselves, not allow ourselves, excuse me, to be swayed and bullied and shamed to to feel differently about our experiences uh, in order to conform, in order to get shunted into this people-pleasing mentality. Like I almost did. I was on the verge of going over, perish the thought, maybe in an alternate reality. There's a new age version of me. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. But I I was close to going over and then Carla Turner pulled me up. And and I really believe that things were orchestrated in a way that I should eventually meet up with Carla and Barbara Rothelick. But there were efforts underway, kind of like in a bureau adjustment sense to Mm -hmm. keep that from happening. Right. And just as there were probably efforts in, in a bureau adjustment sense, to keep you two apart, yeah. something like that happened to me, I feel. And so another thing that uh, I would like people who are coming to grips with this is that discernment also must be invoked when we do the research. Because in the old days, it was actually easier in many ways uh, because you just had to go out and get books and get magazine articles and whatnot. Nowadays, one is confronted with so much information slash disinformation on the internet. We have to guard against a kind of programmed default mechanism within us when we're perusing all these different uh, YouTube channels. Watch ourselves if we start to go in this feel-good kind of direction. And also be wary of those who promote the feel good white hat kind of mentality uh, where it ties into the savior programming that you and Laura talk about Bernard. Uh, 
-hmm. It ties into, you know, the, the victim mentality. There's so much of it plays into all this. It's, it's a very delicate interplay, the way this matrix is set up. So again, it goes by intuition. One does not want, have to watch an entire two-hour video or listen to an entire podcast to feel not right about it. If one has any uncertainty or any kind of disquiet, if you will, about the information they're receiving in an audio podcast or on a visual YouTube video, it's time to stop the video and do something else or to go to another channel. Because of the shame-based programming within us sometimes, Laura and Bernard, it's like, oh, I'll give this person the benefit of the doubt. I don't agree with that, but you know, some of the other stuff the person is saying, well, if you don't agree with that, what else is wrong? Because we can only go by the internal barometer of what feels right to us. And we can't, we can't keep deferring to an outside source to determine, because it's our life. It's how we choose to, to, to deal with this. This is something of a momentous occasion, the, the fact that literal aliens are interacting with us all across the board, all aspects of our totality. One yeah. cannot just, I mean, Barbara Bartholik and Candy Turner and I, we didn't agree on everything. We agreed on the main points. But, you know, everything, no, we're not supposed to agree on everything because we're not Borg. You know what I mean? That, that's, it, it's, we're supposed to retain some degree of individuality. And I think what happens sometimes, Bernard and Laura, is people get lost. You know, it, it's, an, it's paralysis by analysis. They get caught up in watching so many videos that eventually they, they lose their inner guidance. And I think that's really mm-hmm. a shame. And I think that's intentional, too. And also a lot of people like what they think is intuition is just their own emotional baggage and what they want. And I've discovered through developing my own intuition, it's like a, it's a finer energy. So if you're caught in a fear frequency or your life is like in chaos, maybe you are getting information. You also have to kind of deal with your stuff to turn on these higher kind of downloads that come. Otherwise, like it's always going to be mixed in with your own stuff, like hope or fear, like hoping that they're going to be good or fearing them. And you kind of have to maintain this like neutrality, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The, thanks for sharing, um, James. You make some very important points because, you know, it's also trusting our own experience. But, you know, it's also especially when we talk about this topic, aliens, abductions, grace, reptilians, it's already so far out the mainstream. We're already like here going deep right away. I don't know. Uh, you know, people, uh, followers of my work, I'm sure are aware of it, but people who hear this for the first time, they may brand us right away as insane or whatever, or hallucinations. And it's still, you know, you know, I've, I've also researching it for the past 20 years and not much has changed in the mainstream, right? Especially this topic, this quote unquote dark topic, which ties into the topic of all topics of uh, what I've written about as well, which many esoteric teachings have talked about, that humanity is simply not on top of the food chain. That we are farmed for soul energy or soul substance and, 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 and are literally farmed for as food, as, as Dr. Carla Turner said, right? But you also said we're playing with shadows. We always, we don't know. It's still like, you know, there's, the mind can be very deceiving. These impressions become very deceiving. But like you said, it's also deep down inside, we know trusting that, you know. But as Laura said, it's so hard to actually tap into our intuition. It's sometimes easier said than done, just trust your intuition. I seen it myself. I took a little bit of the new age pill years, many years ago and bought into the positive alien because I, I thought I resonated with it, but it was wishful thinking, you know, Stephen Greer disclosure project. Oh, they're here to save us with, with, you know, technology and all of that. So, you know, 
just because something feels good doesn't mean it's the truth, right? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> and also just something just because it makes you feel uncomfortable or afraid doesn't mean that it's not true. Mm-hmm. It just may like be the cognitive dissonance, right? Like challenging your experience and beliefs. And especially this topic, once you just give some validity to, to it, it opens a can of worms. You have to question literally everything in life, all of humanity, our history, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm also curious, you know, um, like we just kind of touched on it. Like, is there a certain, I know that with the occult hostile forces and they obviously have a link with the, with the alien agenda as well. And they feed off of like fear, hatred, you know, conflict, drama. Are there some also frequency states that alien interferences feed off of, or you can tell when they're around? I've noticed for myself, like, Sometimes I'll have dreams and it's like very electronic, like there's an electric energy around me, like in my entire dream state. And usually that's some sort of alien interference, but I'm curious how you can recognize the signs. Like the ringing too, by the way, I experienced that mostly when I was experimenting with ketamine and that's a very alien drug. I'm not sure if you've been aware of it, but... But that's what um, that's what I would hear this ringing that would come from very distant to like just completely absorbing me. So what are some like either, you know, emotional states or like signs that there's some uh, alien interferences present? From a demiurgic Gnostic standpoint and Jerry Marzinski and I just talked about this. I interviewed him shortly before we came on uh, for my show and it was a great interview and we talked about how, and, and we know this, but it bears repeating, in the spirit world, thoughts are things. And Jerry stressed the importance of differentiating what we perceive to be our thoughts from this intrusive, archontic influence uh, element, right? Uh, and he also pointed out how the main theme that runs along all these intrusive thoughts, they all seem to be negative. They're not encouraging thoughts. They're not thoughts of upliftment of plenitude of serenity of being heart-centered it's quite the opposite actually and how that's reinforced by this archontic system the media the uh hollywood everything else everything reinforces the, this divisiveness this acrimony uh this negative uh, energy that you that you're talking about one of the ways that i had to learn the hard way about one of these forms of alien manipulation or contact manipulation is through our sleep state and our dream state. We spend so much time sleeping. And so we're automatically vulnerable because as I pointed out earlier, when the, when the ETs were inducing these out of body experiences in me while I was asleep, we are more than just flesh and blood. So when we're asleep, sometimes we can at times go dimension hopping at times we can achieve body separation and our consciousness can go places. Well, if that's the case, it's just as easy for beings that have the know-how and the understanding to malignly influence our astral dreamscape. And, and I've come to understand, and this is not the case, I'm sure, with everybody, but certainly in my own case and in discussions I've had with other abductees, uh, there's some commonalities and, and some, some parallels. These ETs, these archontic beings, have the means to instill phobias into what's in our sleep state. Mm. It could be a case of of arachnophobia where someone is having constant dreams of big spiders. Everywhere they look, there's a big spider on the wall, on the floor, and everything is magnified 
in these dreams sometimes. Sometimes there's a dark, seedy element to some of these dreams where you seem to be in a darker, lower astral realm. It doesn't seem to be well illuminated. Uh, there's a seedy character to some of these dreams with large cockroaches scurrying about. And they play on our primal fears, uh, Bernard and Laura. Human beings, for the most part, we like to think ourselves as, as hygienic, clean kind of beings. And so what happens in some of these archontically influenced dreams are one finds themselves in a place that's absolutely filthy. And, you know, going into a lot of detail here, so, so please forgive me. One finds himself in what I, what I call a stage bandage dream. And Carla Turner and I used to talk, talk a lot about this. Barbara Bartholick too, where they hijack your dream and they put you in a scenario and try as you might, you cannot wake up from it and you just have to go through it and experience whatever stimuli, whatever spectacle you're being presented with. And sometimes they play on our fear of filth and disgusting things, feces, urine, etc. So one finds himself in a scenario, either outdoors or indoors, where there's feces and there's urine laying everywhere. And you're either barefoot or you're wearing socks and there's no way around it. You're just like, one of these times if I have these kind of a dream, I'm just going to walk right through it just to break that pattern, break that spell, if you will. But what happens is because that aspect of us, that conscious, normal aspect of us likes to be clean, likes to be hygienic, when we find ourselves in a stage managed dream, and the, the environments in these scenarios can vary. It could be a very dirty, messy locker room, a very dirty, messy bathroom. And it brings about this morbid fear of germs, morbid fear of filth and, and what have you. That's just one example, right? And this can manifest in, in different ways in our normal waking consciousness. OCD thought loops of cleanliness, always washing our hands, always uh, you know, soaping up to the point where, you know, our skin gets chapped and dried up because we're always washing our hands, right? This could also, and we've talked about this, Laura, how this also can tie into past life issues where if, if someone died as a result of a contagion or a disease or whatever the case may be, that primal fear carries over into this life. The aliens seem to be able to tank not into our memory banks from this incarnation, but they seemingly have some of them the ability to tap into our previous incarnations memories, even though we're not consciously aware of them and then play on that. So mm -hmm. they, they can make us arachnophobic, if that's a word, because we keep seeing spiders in our dreams. And that that's a whole nother category because there are these spider kind of beings. There are these spider. And now there's even a variation of that that's being reported of kind of an AI spider bot thing that's oh, being, heard about those, yeah. being seen by people. Uh, there are these interdimensional spider type beings that show up in people's experiences. So it plays, the, the whole spider spectacle plays on very deep primordial levels. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, well, please. Uh, no, no, that's very interesting because I want to kind of go deep into this whole um, dream state, dreaming, because you're right, we sleep a third of our lives. You know, and it's even when you study esoteric occult knowledge, occult teachings, there these forces are most active at night when we sleep because we are more vulnerable. We're already out of body in the sense when we're sleeping in dream state and the soul is recharging. And like you said, it can archetypal like um, produce all kinds of what do you call it? Stage scenarios. Um, stage you know, managed dreams. Stage managed dreams. Exactly. Um, 
which again, we, you know, that's also, it's so interesting because a lot of it could be also, okay, we can see it from a Jungian perspective as people would maybe claim, oh, this is just our unconscious coming up or we have suppressed, you know, the shadows. So it's, it's, it's dream work. Yes, there can be some truth to that. Absolutely. So you can see it that way. But it seems also that the these, this dream hacking or these stage scenarios, they tag into specific fears of us as an individual. Yeah. Right, because many people would have noticed what I've, we've talked about with clients, Laura's as well on the forum. We're having they're dealing with a lot of nightmares, mm. right? And especially people have been dealing with trauma, right? Repeatedly nightmares, and they're just exaggerated, and it creates a certain frequency, right? So, out of your own experience, do you have any suggestions how we can protect ourselves uh, do at night, literally, or like you know to? Uh, uh, not get subjected to these to these dream hacks. I just had Steve Mira on my show uh, several weeks back, and he talked about how they've noticed when certain abductees, a lot of abductees, actually, uh, after shortly after an experience, when they give blood and have blood work drawn, there's a there's a marked reduction of iron content in their blood and the their blood chemistry and for some reason some of these entities some of these ets have this interest in iron hmm. and then you look at it from the standpoint of you know folkloric tradition how iron in the medieval scheme of things for example was thought to invoke some degree of protection to the point where people wear iron amulets. Uh, when a newborn is sleeping in its crib, they would hang a piece of iron off the crib or place it actually in the crib to keep the fairies, the fae, uh, the wee folk, from taking the baby away or replacing it with a changeling. So it's embedded in the lore of a lot of traditional cultures around the world that there seems to be a protected element to iron. And uh, please, if you have an observation. Wait, you're going to comment? <laughs> no, but this iron is very, very fascinating because uh, I just want to, you know, explore more. But just, just think right away, you know, you've been dealing with uh, anemia, uh, anemia, iron deficiency because you've been a vegan a long time, a lot of vegan, vegetarian, or vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. And this is, maybe it's going to trigger a lot of vegetarian vegans <laughs> listening to this podcast right now. But I have to point it out because when I did, it's very interesting you say that because when I did research in this abduction phenomenon over 10, 15 years ago, I came across some research as well that many abductees uh, actually have the patterns that they have uh, vegetarians or vegans. And it's almost like because they have lower defenses and these defenses could be actually the lower amount of iron in mm, their blood. That would right? be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I didn't think about that. I mean, here's another interesting point to ponder. When hardcore Satanists like Crowley and others like him, when they were not part partaking in flesh, let's say, of, of one sort or another, they were strict vegetarians. And again, I don't want to upset people. I don't want to trigger people here. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get, well, get triggered anyway. Let's so. that's, that's <laughs> just put it like first psychological rule. You cannot <laughs> blame anybody for the way you feel. If that's it right. you, meditate on it, look into it. You know, maybe something in childhood happened. I don't know. Go ahead, James. <laughs> that's right. And so when they're not partaking, at least some of them uh, that are parts of these, uh, these cults and these fraternal orders, 
many of them are strict vegetarians or vegans. And one school of thought, Barbara Barthelik and I used to talk about this, is precisely the point that you brought up. A protein deficient person is not only more vulnerable to this kind of archontic predation, if you will, this supernatural, spiritual, energetic influence, but what if, what if it's part of the discipline in some of these, these cults and some of these fraternal orders precisely to allow themselves to be a vegetarian, normal vegetarian diet, to allow themselves to have indwelling, to be taken up as a host full or part-time to make the process easier, okay? And mm-hmm. I, I know that's upsetting because I know a lot of very spiritual-based people that are hardcore anti-New World Order types that happen to be, you know, vegan or vegetarian. And, and they know all of, a lot about the alien negative alien agenda. Yeah, They just happen to be, you know, vegetarians or vegans. But, uh, you know, getting back to the point that Steve Mira was making, which, you know, he and I had a good discussion about that. He pointed out that if you'll notice, it's difficult to just go out and get iron. You have to get some kind of substitute for it. Yeah. And and, and I thought about that. Well, that's interesting mm-hmm. because you can even see animals. I've seen my own dogs eating dirt because they want to partake of the mineral minerals, including iron in the soil. So why do they make it difficult? And we have to replace the depleted iron within us with these supplements and you know some may work some may not work so well so we've had to resort to getting substitutes for iron mm. so long story short one very good substitute is is hematite if, if there's one kind of necklace or piece of jewelry anklet or whatever that you can get that's very grounding mm. and i think that's an important thing uh is hematite to help you stay embodied that's a magnetic one right yeah it's a magnetic it's a magnetic uh, thing it has a magnetic property to it so Mm -hmm. things that are very grounding in general i i feel are very helpful it is a frequency war so anything that tends to get us disembodied and i love the work the stuff that you guys have been doing in in that regard uh, pointing out the the fact that the last thing we want to do is consciously vibrate at a higher level if we're not ready to take go to that next level right and 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 so it's important to stay embodied uh and also to you know treat ourselves in a diet sense in uh, in a mental health sense in such a way that you know we're all we're not all scatterbrained we're not constantly of ill health because anything that gets us out of center i hate to say it and it sounds profoundly negative but anything that gets us out of center from a spiritual supernatural standpoint leaves us vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a lot more to be said about that because I've had a lot of alien uh, interferences in my family of origin and we we all grew up as vegetarians. So, and I could also see, I mean, we can talk more about this in the second hour when I was the most out of body, when I was like a strict vegan, even sometimes even raw vegan, that's when the whole positive alien agenda came full force in my life through a bunch of basically like negative synchronicities. So, and someone in my close family has a really intense gray alien, uh, you know, 
I don't know what you would call it, attachment basically, and has been a vegetarian his whole life. So I think that there's definitely a correlation there, not to say that if you are a vegetarian, you're going to be abducted by aliens, but I could see that it was my own lack of embodiment that allowed me to even believe lies, basically. And it was just, you know, wanting to feel good. And what I thought was bliss was basically me being out of body and from what I've known, aliens like to manipulate like high frequency emotions by making you feel like, you know, you hear about people who get go through these, um, what do they call it? The uh, hybrid children. They're like, oh, I felt amazing bliss. Like I was on MDMA and that means it was a good experience, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Now, the, the key point is to understand what James said before that how they can also manipulate our emotions, you yeah. know, to see him have a full enlightenment experience. And like you can, you know, I know about your experience, especially in the, in the you know, in Peru in the Sacred Valley with all this, this community who is like purposely using ayahuasca to call down aliens and work with the greys and, you know, even create a hybrid children center down there and all of that. It's crazy, you know, because I've lost touch of this whole, I thought people finally look through this new age nonsense, but it's almost like revitalizing itself. Do you see this as well? What's happening in the new age, uh, James? Yes, the the new age is, is very persistent. Nothing new about it, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but the, you know, and you see different aspects to it, too, is just this notion of willy-nilly, we're just going to go and open portals everywhere. We're going to do grid work. Yeah. Our guides, our ascended masters told us to do grid work at this or that site. But, you know, the spin is they're doing it to ward off the evil from the evil governments or whatever the case may be. But who's to say what the real purpose of gridding these places are? And not only gridding it, but mm -hmm. the intention of all the members of these groups who literally go around the world. I, I know some of these people. They literally go around the world and grid all these sacred sites. So there's, yeah. there's a strong amount of intention and energy behind it. Yeah, that's, that's a good point because that was brought up on the forum on our forum about grid work. And that's a huge red flag for me. You know, of, you know almost like this almost an entitlement, who are you to say that you can even do grid work on yes. Earth? You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> like, like what, who do you think you are? You know, what yes. is good for and, the planet? And, and they're getting this guidance from some faceless, nameless, ascended master channeling through somebody. That's what's mm. really disturbing about it. It's, that could yeah. be a Draco or something that's giving that information. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, excellent, James. I think we're at the end of the first hour. Um, you know, uh, let's go deep into all of this and even more. Uh, what's some of the topics we want to get into? Um, definitely, I'd like to talk, hear you talk more about my labs because I hear yeah, a lot of whatever. People, um, saying that they were in my labs. So how do you separate the truth from lies in this? Um, also, um, you know, speak to this maybe Corey Good, like the Gaia TV Alien Savior Program, because a lot of people who I know a lot of people. When I talk about any reptilians or aliens, they, they hop on me with this kind of programming. So maybe you could talk more about that and if you have any information that, about that. And, you know, also this disclosure idea, like, you know, yeah. um, let's talk about what's the truth in there and what is like, I mean, I see more bullshit than truth, but like yeah. just your own, your own, your own experiences on, on, and research on where you think that's leading and anything else. Yeah, and then we go from there. I also want to share some personal experiences, you know, and some questions we have. 
for you. And again, the second hour is available for members. Uh, if you're not a member already, you can sign up at veilofreality.com. That's my website. And you have also access to the membership forum. And um, James's uh, website is thecosmicswitchboard.com. An excellent podcast on there as well. And do you have any events? I think you have events coming up in Australia, right? Like anything you want to mention? Yes, November twenty-seventh uh, and twenty-eighth. No, it's twenty-eighth, November twenty-eighth and twenty-ninth in Byron Bay, New South Wales. I will be part of a two-day conference. Uh, myself, Leah Capitelli, the, the Strongs, Evan and Stephen Strong, and Brendan Murphy, uh, just the four of us, uh, and it's a two-day conference. And I'm going to address some of these faux disclosure issues. I'm going to talk about kind of a capsule concise history of you of government military knowledge industrial knowledge about ets and ufos going back at least to the 1940s and talking about some of the major milestones that have happened uh, bringing us up to the present time and why hasn't that come out into the mainstream media we keep hearing about what these navy pilots have, have seen it's almost and i'll elaborate more on the second half uh, bernard and laura but it almost seems as if they're trying to throw their hat in the ring regain the narrative and mm -hmm. and become this military priesthood of all-knowing all-wise types as it mm -hmm. seems to me excellent wow great thank you james and see thank you all back in the second hour